sure. All right, you guys ready for the Word of God? You ready to get going in this series, Protecting Our Future? So I've titled the message here this morning, No Time for Sleepwalking. Any sleepwalkers here today? No time for sleepwalking. So would you go before the Lord in prayer? Lord, we come before you this morning, and, and Lord, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for, for what, your, what your word does in our life. It, it, it confronts, it challenges, it comforts, it, it convicts, and it changes us. And so, Lord, we submit to the power of your word here today. And Lord, God, I ask that you would help every single one of us, Lord, to receive what it is that you want to share with us. Lord, I pray that, that your will would be done, and God, I pray that you would help me to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. So we are starting a series called Protecting Our Future. We're starting it this morning, and we're going to go for four more weeks af- after this, and we are going to talk about the next generation. We're going to talk about our future. You know, our children, young people are our future. Do you believe that? I mean, for those who are older, you do realize that your, your kids are going to live longer than you. They're going to be the future. They're the ones that are going to pass the baton. You're going to pass the baton to them. They're going to take the torch that you lead them and carry it on into the future. And so our future is so important. And our future and our focus on the future with our children has to be a priority in our life. Not only as parents. This is not just a series for parents. I want to say this from the outset, it's not just a series for parents. This is a series for all of those that God has given us influence into the next generation as adults. And that is everyone. That's everyone. All of us, God's given all of us as, as adults the ability to influence the next generation. Whether it's as parents, as, as a boss, as a teacher, as a, a, just a co-worker or, or a brother and sister in Christ. In some way, shape, or form, God has placed you into someone's life that is younger than you, that you can point them to the kingdom of God and to his purposes so that God's purposes can move forward in this earth. Do you believe that? So we're going to introduce this subject. We're, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 was the, the commands of the Lord given to the nation of Israel after after he, he had rescued them from Egyptian slavery. And he gives them these commands and he tells them that they need to they need to, to obey him, follow his ways, follow his ways, and to teach their children his ways. And we're going to look at that over the next four weeks. We're going to look at three verses this morning, but we're really going to unpack it further through the rest of the verses in four weeks. And we'll have more practical application messages over the next four weeks. But this message is kind of a call, which is hence the title of the message, No Time for Sleepwalking. It's a call for us to understand what we are up against as parents and as leaders that are seeking to lead the next generation to follow after Christ. The Joshua, the, the, the Joshua generation died. So the children of Israel, if you fast forward past Deuteronomy, they do eventually get into the promised land that God promised them. But the, but the Joshua generation dies. And look at what it says in Joshua chapter 2, in verse 10 and 12. It says this, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. So those two 
these two realities here. When, when, when you read this section in Judges 2 that stand out to me, that pierce my heart when I read them, is that a generation followed after the Joshua generation, the generation that, that conquered and, and went into the promised land, the generation that saw the power of God move in amazing ways, the generation that came after them did not know the Lord. Did not know the Lord that rescued by power, did not know the Lord that was faithful to his promises. And then the the next one in verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their father. So it's one thing to say that they didn't know the Lord because the, the generation prior did not teach them about the Lord, but it specifically says in verse 12 that they abandoned the Lord. They made a choice to, to abandon and to walk away from the God of their fathers. Does that not rest heavy on you when you read that? If you have kids, grandkids, or you look at this next generation coming after us, it should rest heavy on our shoulders to think about the reality that a generation could come after us and that they would choose to abandon the Lord. I believe in Deuteronomy 6, God gives us, God gives us principles from his word that will ensure, that will ensure that, 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 that we can make that decision difficult for the next generation by how we live, by how we teach, by how we guide them, by how we influence their life. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6. Let's, let's look at the first three verses here. It says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. Listen to what the Lord says, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in the land flowing with milk and honey. You and your son and your son's son. What is the Lord saying here in Deuteronomy 6? What is he saying here today in 2021? He is saying this. He's talking about generational faith. Generational faith. The faith that I have in Christ. I want to pass it on to my kids and my kids' kids. I want my grandkids and my great-grandkids. And if the Lord tarries, I want generations after me to follow the God of the Bible. To follow the one true living God, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of humanity. I want them to not abandon the Lord. I don't want them to abandon the Lord. I want them to follow God all the days of their life. What the Lord is speaking to here, he's speaking to a generation of parents and leaders. And he's saying that, 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 that if you will live by my ways, if you will abide by my ways, and you will diligently teach your children... That you and your son and your son's sons, your children and your children's children can follow after the Lord. Generational faith. The responsibility of the God-fearing parents and spiritual leaders of a nation to pass on their spiritual heritage to the next generation. This is what the Lord is speaking of in Deuteronomy 6. But it's going to always be a fight. We realize that, don't we? It's never going to be easy. Anybody raising kids or trying to raise up the next generation, you know it's a fight. It's a fight to get them to take out the garbage. Much less follow Christ. 
So it's always going to be a fight. And here are the two reasons why it's going to be a fight. I think there's two reasons why it's always a fight. In every nation throughout history where there are people who serve the living God, the one true God, it is always a fight to pass on that faith to the next generation for these two reasons. One, the inherent sinfulness of parents and leaders and children. That's one of the main reasons why it's difficult. Is because we are inherently sinful. And so, and so we have this propensity to go our own way and to not. Parents have a propensity to not want to obey their parents. And parents can get exasperated with their children and not live out their responsibility to shape the next generation. And here's the other reason. The other reason that it is a fight is because Satan has a plan to keep our children and the future generation from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you see the inherent sinfulness of parents and children, but you also see that Satan has a real plan to keep our kids from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is what we're up against. This is the fight. And it is important for us as parents to understand that it is our responsibility, no matter how difficult, no matter the fight, no one else has this responsibility but us as parents and leaders. It's our responsibility to shape the thinking of our kids. You know, living in a, in a, in a modern society, what some would call postmodern society, where science is king and thinking is king, free thinking, and, and, and you are the center of your universe, and you, you would be told that you can't shape your, your kids' minds. Let them figure it out on their own. Let them kind of organically figure out who they want to be, what they want to do, and what they want to value. As Christians, that's not the objective. That's not the goal. And what's actually true is, is those that are in the world that will preach that type of message, they are the ones who are trying to aggressively shape the thinking of our children. That has always happened in every generation. Children's minds must be shaped. And they're either going to be shaped by the thinking of Satan and the culture that he motivates, or they're going to be shaped by godly men and women. We are called to brainwash our children. <laughs> I told that to Estelle. I said, that sounds funny, but it's true. And, 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 and if you think, well, that sounds kind of weird. It, it's not weird. It's simply washing the minds of our children from the filth that they absorb and pick up in the culture around them. Help them to understand a biblical worldview about creation, God. Help them to understand a biblical worldview about, about themselves and who God called them to be, about, about Christ and sin and redemption. Help them to understand these. We are washing their minds, washing their brains with the power of God's word. This has always been what societies have done, what people have done. Shaping the minds of children. And the goal is not that we would shape the minds of our children so they would become like us. That's not the goal, mom and dad and leaders. The goal is that we would shape the minds of our, of our children and next generation so that they would become like Christ. That's the goal. I don't want my kids to be just like me. Oh, God, God forbid. I'm so quirky. I'm so strange. When I, go to, when I go to bed at night, if the fan is ticking, actually, I got rid of the ceiling fan. You, ever, you got a ceiling fan that, you know, you like the noise? I like the noise to go to sleep. And I, I, I'm either going to have to buy a new ceiling fan or get something that didn't make a ticking noise. Because I would lay awake at night hearing the, the, the fan tick. 
My wife says, you're so strange. I don't want my kids to be like me and inherit those crazy tendencies. But I want them to serve the God of Scripture that has captured my heart. Right? And so my goal is to not make them like me. But my goal is to make them like Christ. To point them to Christ. To follow me as I follow Christ. Mind shaping, mind washing will happen. Someone shaping the minds of our children, their friends, their teachers, Hollywood, Google, Google. They want to know answers. Where do they go? They don't go to mom and dad. Where do they go? They go first to Google. They go to Google and they look up answers to their questions. And then if it still doesn't make sense to them, then they, make, then they might go to their parents. It's the age in which we live in, Google Social media, these are the ones that are aggressively shaping the minds of our children. And the social media influencers of this generation are not passive. We become passive. They are not passive. They're not passive in their attempt to shape the minds of the next generation concerning views about God, the world around them, morality, sexuality, and gender. They are not passive. So I, I just want to use this example that shaping the minds of children has always been the way to influence the future of a nation. It's always been that way. And here's an example of a math problem presented to German students in the 1930s. This is an, a literal example from a math book to German students in the 1930s. It says this. Here's the problem. The Jews are aliens in Germany. In 1933, there were 66 million people living in Germany. Of this total, 499,862 were Jewish. What is the percentage of aliens in Germany? What do you think is happening there? Leaders, people in charge, are trying to systematically shape the minds of children. And in, in an extreme sense, and I believe it is still an extreme sense, but, but when we look at the 1930s in, in Germany and the rise of Hitler and his authority, Hitler was after a reshaping of the moral foundation of of a nation. He was after the reshaping of the moral foundation of a nation to change the belief of a nation and a future generation about the value and worth of a population of people. And it worked. It horrifically worked. And the world watched as millions of Jewish people were exterminated. Hitler and those that were supportive of him They changed the moral fabric of an entire country. And that was pre-internet and pre-social media. You would think, how is that possible then? I I, I heard this quote before. This is by Martin Martin Niemöller. He was a German pastor that lived during the time of Hitler. And he said this about the response of the church and of the Christians. He says this, first they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I, I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And so this is my challenge to us here today. Some of you may think I'm just making this just a huge deal. Anytime you point to Hitler or Germany about a, an issue or a subject, people say, well, you're, you're, just, you're, you're just over-exaggerating this. And I, I don't believe that, that I am. I believe that, 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 that in the society today in which we live in, in America, in the United States of America, we are up against 
The same enemy of our souls that wants to shape an entire generation to reject the moral foundation of God as creator, to, re- to, to reject the moral foundation for God as savior, to, re- to reject the moral foundation of sexuality and gender. And so I, I, I have a question. And this is going to lead us into the rest of this message. And the question is this, what is the most aggressive attack of the enemy on our children and the progression of faith to the next generation? This is just my opinion about this. This is where I believe that we are. This is what I believe is the greatest attack on our kids. This is the greatest attack. There is a full force attack targeting our kids concerning their sexuality and gender. That's what I believe. That's what I see. And I'm going to explain to you why I believe this is happening. And, we're, and, and what I'm going to do is, before we get into the latter part of this message, I in no way have the time to go throughout the history of America and recount to us and show us how this progression has taken place. I don't have the time. I'm going to look at some highlights and what I would call some accelerants that took place that moved us to where we are in 2021 concerning sexuality and gender and the next generation. And so the shifting in our culture did not begin last year or the year before that or the year before that. It's been happening for many years, but there have been, men, there have been accelerants that have increased the intensity of the attack. And in our country, one of the clearest examples of the descent into immorality is what historians would call the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution by those who study this trend and this pattern would have happened in the, in, in the early 1960s, into the, in, into the late 1960s, and many people would have called it the, the hippie movement, the, 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 the free love movement. It was a time whenever, if you would have gone pre-1960s into the 30s, 40s, 50s, there was a general consensus in American society that the biblical view of the world was the true view. The biblical view of marriage and family and kids and sexuality and gender was the, was, the, was the true view, was the foundation of our country. But beginning in the 1960s, clearly before that, because man has always, always been sinful and has always sought to reject God's standards, but we saw an acceleration of a push against biblical views of sexuality and gender in the 1960s. And it was the free love movement. And, and everyone wanted to, to do with their bodies, however they wanted to do with their bodies. And, 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 and this was a time where, before the 1960s, before the early to mid-1960s, um, there, was, there was this idea that, that, that sexuality was reserved for marriage. It was reserved for the confines of the way God has established it. So on the heels of that sexual revolution in the 1960s came a landmark decision by the Supreme Court in 1973. Who knows what happened in 1973 in the Supreme Court? Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade, the legalization of abortion. So this is in America, the legalization of abortion. You have kind of the, 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 the onslaught of the sexual revolution in the 1960s, and then you have on its heels the legalization of abortion. So this is what you have. You have this mindset of sexual autonomy. I do with my body the way that I want. I I live how I want to live, and I'm going to have sex with who I want to have sex with with, without any fear of the, the consequences. And so on the heels of that, it is no accident by 1973 that it was time for people to be able to deal with the consequences of their choices. 
And so abortion was legalized. And so now, thus began the greatest attack on the next generation in the history of our country. Over 62 million babies have been murdered in the womb since 1973 in America. Over 62 million image bearers of God have been prevented from living life for his glory so that over 62 million people could have the right to do what they wanted with their bodies at the expense of the lives that God had entrusted into their care. And I believe that the fruits of this unrighteousness in our country today are are the direct result of the sin against God through the rejection of his created order for marriage and family and children and the devaluing of human life. So the sexual revolution that began in the 60s has continually progressed with no signs of slowing down. And our children continue to be the ones who experience the greatest attack. So now we fast forward. Obviously, it progressed in, it, the sexual revolution has progressed in many different ways. Uh, same-sex marriage was legalized uh, uh, it was 20, 2015, I believe, or maybe prior to that. Um, and so you see other, other accelerants, but I want to go b- b- before same-sex marriage was legalized. I think another accelerant would be the age of instant information, the age of the Internet. And so this is a time where now we can get instant information out. Now a worldview that would take sometimes a generation to get Across to people, now in an instant, anti-God, anti-biblical worldviews can be consumed by whoever wants to consume them. This is a massive accelerant of this revolution to push back against God and his ways and his view of sexuality and gender. Albert Moeller puts it like this. He wrote a book called The Gathering Storm. He says this, the church of Jesus Christ faces an unprecedented challenge. The collision between it and and a new sexual ethic, a collision between revelation and revolution. The revolution is a sexual one, and it is indeed a revolution, demanding a complete reordering of society and civilization. Indeed, this revolution questions a fundamental grounding of what it means to be human, to be male and female. The sexual revolution usurps the very source and ground of human identity right down to whether or not our creation determines in any sense who we are as humanity. This revolution rejects the revelation of God and his creational mandates, the goodness with which he designed sex, maleness, and femaleness. It's profound. I encourage you, buy that book, The Gathering Storm by Albert Moeller. That's just a little snippet of, of, what, of what he brings out and shows here. I believe it is so true. There is no limit to how far this revolution will go. With the only goal is to go as far away from any binary or morally objective standard for human sexuality and gender identification. It seems like every 15 minutes there can be a new sexual identity. You have social media influencers that will come out and say that I am no longer this, I'm no longer that. And they come up with a new category for how they can live out their life and their sexuality. Every 15 minutes, it can be a new category for gender. You don't have to be male. You don't have to be female. You, don't, you can be neither. You can be all of them if you want. Whatever gender you want to be, that is the cultural ethic. It's trying, it, it, this mindset is, a, is an attempt from the enemy. It's influenced our culture to reshape the very core of who we are as society. And it is a direct 
attack on our kids and the future generation. And this is what's so interesting, is that in a society that has thrown off God and embraced science as their new deity, actual science and biology is ignored so as to maintain the delusion. You know, what, you know what's interesting in all this, Mulder brings it out in his book, is that there were certain people that were famous. There's one tennis player, her name is Martina Navratilova. She came out as homosexual years ago, I believe it was in the 70s, and she was kind of a champion, a 70s or 80s, she was a champion for that movement. And now you fast forward into our day, and she took a stand against the transgender movement of males wanting to compete in female athletics. And she said, this is not fair. Their biology would prevent them from being able to come and compete and for it to be fair. She stood up against it and she got blasted. And she came back and she said, okay, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to study this. She came back and she presented her work. She presented her work and said, it is not fair. So you see the progression goes into a direction that is completely non-science. It's completely non-reality. And within the LGBTQ plus community and society and worldview, they begin, it begins to break down from within. Because it is a rejection of reality as God has given it to us. The end goal of these revolutionaries is to completely eradicate every semblance of God's good design for human sexuality and gender. And to place human beings as the final determiners of that ultimate reality. Do you see it? That's the end goal. Is that I can have the autonomy to say that if I want to be a male, I can be a male. But if I want to be a female, I can be a female. And ultimately, if I want to be a dog, I can be a dog. That's coming. And we giggle, but it's coming. If I don't want to marry a man or marry a female, I can marry my pet. That is coming. A complete, when, when God in his ways and the foundation he's given us as he's ordered to society and humanity in his image, he's created us as male and female. When we reject that foundational reality, there are no limits for where it will end up. And the ones that suffer the most are our children. Because the ones they're watching on Instagram and TikTok are the ones that are pushing that agenda on them. And telling them to rethink the way in which your parents have told you about the world. You know what this is? This is Romans 1, again, on full display. Man throwing off God and worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Listen, that's what it is. It's idolatry and self-worship. To look at the creator of the universe who put his imprint on me as a human being. I am made in his image and his likeness. And for me to say, God, no, I am throwing that off and I'm creating a new reality for myself. What I'm saying is, is that God, you are not my God. You are not my creator, and I am worshiping myself. I get to create myself. I want power. Listen, I want power over my own creation. This is what sinful human beings do, though. This is what has always happened throughout human history. But my question is this. What makes this time in American history different? And I really believe this. I believe it is different because it is the 
the age of instant information via the internet. I listened to, I listened to a young lady preparation for this message. I listened to a lot of different things. I listened to this young lady who at 17 transitioned from being a woman to a man. She had surgery. To help that, she took testosterone and hormone replacement and all of that. She went down that whole process. And then she got born again. She got born again. She started reading the Bible. She got saved. It's a beautiful story. But at the end of it, the interviewer asked her, what do you wish your parents would have done when you were 15, 16, 17? Because they didn't want her to do this. She said, I wish they would have taken the internet from me. And she's 21 years old right now. This is not just, this is just recently. She said, I wish they would have taken the internet from me. I believe that is actually what happens. Our kids' minds are being shaped by TikTok stars and Instagram stars and social media stars and Hollywood. And they're looking at these through social media, through Google, through the internet. And their minds are being shaped through YouTube. In just a few short years, the LGBTQ revolutionaries can shape a new generation to believe a completely new sexual ethic that has no foundation in God and his divine revelation. And this is the goal. The, the LGBTQ plus agenda is not just wrong because it violates scripture. It is wrong because it ignores the clear imprint of God's image in humanity. That's why it's wrong. We can say, yes, scripture says this, but, but it's clear. It's, it's called natural revelation. It's called natural. We can see God's clear imprint on humanity, even on sinful humanity, we can see the clear imprint of God's design. So we must ask ourselves two important questions as we look at our responsibilities. And now that I've painted the picture for what I believe we're up against, what I believe is the greatest battle that we face for our kids, we have two foundational questions we have to answer. The first one is this. What is God's very good design for human sexuality and gender? It's the first question. Genesis 1 helps us answer that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God saw that everything that he made and behold, it was what? It wasn't just good. Earlier he said it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. He makes man. He makes woman in his image. Then he says it was very good. Before sin and death entered the human race, God called his creation and his created order very good. Very good. And I want you to understand this. Even after the fall of man in Genesis 3, there is still a remnant of the very good design of God imprinted on every human being. There's a sacredness that is a part of every human being. Why? Because that image of God, even though it is marred by sin... And death, the imprint still remains. This is why we fight for the unborn. This is why we speak up and say abortion is wrong. This is why we speak up and say God made male, God made female, God made marriage between one man and one woman. This is the design with which he created his world and his humanity. And this is the way in which humanity will glorify him most is by living out the way in which he designed us. This is why every human being is sacred. 
This is why even though sin has powerfully impacted our human experience in this life, God's very good design is still reflected in us because we are still made in the image of God. This is why it doesn't matter how much a sin-filled society throws off God and his ways. God still has in his imprint on every life. And the imprint of our gender and sexuality is a sacred reflection that remains in spite of the effects of sin. I want you to get this. This has to be something that we really process here. The reason that it matters that we live as God has created us as human beings is because who God has made us as human beings is a sacred reflection of him. It's a sacred reflection of him. What sinful natures and sinful actions do is that they distort what God designed for our flourishing. I just want to say this. While every sin has equal consequences eternally before God, I believe that every sin has equal consequences eternally before God, but not every sin has equal earthly consequence. I could think in my mind that I hate you. And Jesus would tell me, the Sermon on the Mount, that I'm guilty of murder. But if I live my whole life hating you but never murder you, I may end up in hell, but my earthly consequence is a lot different if I, if I kill you than if I just hate you. Did you guys follow that? The same is true of sexual sin. While every sin has equal consequence eternally before God, not every sin has equal earthly consequence. The sin of rejecting the Creator's sacred good design, sacred very good design for sexuality and gender, is that they have long-lasting and powerful earthly consequences. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is not just sex outside of marriage, not just homosexuality. Sexual immorality is, is the transgender movement. Who we are in our gender and our sexuality is in this umbrella of sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What does that mean? Think about this. Think about what we're looking at. How is it a sin against our own body when we sin sexually? I believe the writer, I believe Paul is saying here that there's a connection between sexual sin and the image of God and his standard for creation. That when we sin sexually, it is not just a rejection of God and his ways in general. It is an ultimate rejection of God with his imprint of his creation in gender and sexuality that he's placed in us. Do you follow that? Because God's very good design for human sexuality and gender remains imprinted in every person as a reality of being a sacred reflection of God's own image. And when we live contrary to how God created us as male and female, we are living with our own design for our life, which is a poor substitute, and listen, and which places us under intense emotional and physical, physical consequences. I don't have time to go through all of the statistics or any of the stats on this, but it is overwhelming, the statistics for those who are in the LGBTQ plus community. The depression, the anxiety, the suicide. People will say, well, you can't talk like this because you're going to increase the suicide 
or, the, or, 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 or a person that's struggling in those areas to be suicidal. And, and my answer to that is, is that they are suicidal because, or they have, are struggling with those thoughts because they have rejected the way that God has designed them to flourish. And the only way in which they will get out from under that is if they hear the truth of God's word. We're not, we're not increasing the chances of them being suicidal. We are giving them the hope and saying, no, you can come out from under the consequences and the reality of the struggles you're walking through. You, you, you're walking through depression, anxiety. You're trying to figure out who you are. And God has said, this is who you are. This is how I've made you. I've put my image imprinted at the core of who you are. And when you reject that, it is obvious that emotionally, physically, there's going to be consequences that take place. It's kind of like this. Have you ever, you ever not changed the oil in your car for about a year? Some of you may have a car that you can do that. <laughs> but you just don't ever change the oil in your car. What's going to happen if you don't maintenance your car? It's going to break down. Well, why will it break down? Because the manufacturer who created gave the specifications and said for this car... To work properly, the creator says you must change the oil every 3,000 miles. You must change the spark plugs. You must rotate the tires. You must change this fluid and change this fluid and add this and tweak this. Why? Because the designer said this is how that vehicle is made to work. And whenever we push back against the owner's manual, we push back against the way God designed us. It's no wonder cars are breaking down. It's no wonder people are breaking down. It's no wonder society is imploding from within. It does not matter how hard mankind tries to live out from under the imprint of God or how hard they try and cover up or change it. His intended design will always speak loudly. And here's what he says. God says, my design for who you are at the deepest level is very And trusting me with that design is the way in which you will reach your full potential. God's design will always speak loudly. So we have one more very important question to answer. And the question is this. What should our response be to all of this? To this attack on God's design and and on our children? I'm going to tell you that I have four necessary responses to that question, don't think I have another 30 minutes because I don't. <laughs> but I have four answers to that question. The question is, what should our response be to this attack on God's design and our children? I see four necessary responses. The first one is this. Our battle is not against fellow image bearers of God. Our battle is not against fellow image bearers of God. Where's our battle? Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My brothers and my sisters, if you don't believe in the demonic realm and the forces of evil, Scripture tells us very clearly right here. That they are real. And this is the center of where the attack comes from. We don't wrestle against fellow image bearers of God. It is a fight against the enemy Satan. 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh, but have divine power to do what? To destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Do you see that? It is so clear. This is where our battle is. It's not against image bearers of God, but it is against the lies of the enemy that he is using them to to influence our children. They're lofty arguments, they're strongholds, and those lofty arguments, they're, they're in opposition to the knowledge of God. God is creator. God is lawgiver. So what do we do? We take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when the obedience is complete. So we do not wage war against the flesh or in the flesh. Our battle is against Satan and his destructive lies. So believer, parent, leader, if you do not recognize the battle of worldviews that we are in, you will get swept away and deceived. Just if you pay attention to the evangelical world today, every week, every month, this person, I'm no longer, I no longer believe the biblical view of marriage. I no longer believe it of gender. I no longer believe Jesus is the only way. I no longer, no longer, no longer, no longer, no longer, no longer, no longer hold to the truthfulness of scripture. These are people who are supposed to be Christians. They're saying this. I, I no longer believe, no longer believe, no longer believe. Why is that happening? Because they weren't aware of the battle. Because they got swept up into the middle of it. And they heard those persuasive arguments. From the culture. And they're they're rejecting. God's word and God's ways. If you do not recognize the battle of worldviews that we're in. You will get swept away and deceived. And listen. And your influence will be used for evil and not for good. You can't be neutral. You, You can't be neutral in this. As Christians we cannot be neutral. If you're neutral. If you're neutral in this. You can get sucked into being used by the God of this world. We must be on God's side. Second necessary response is this. Take the log out of our eye first. Our battle is not against fellow fellow image bearers of God. And secondly, take the log out of our eye first. Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck? Jesus says is in your brother's eye. Do not notice the log that is in your, your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the context here of this section that Jesus is saying here is to uncover the hypocrisy amongst those who consider themselves spiritual. He's saying, brother, take, you're going to a brother. You're saying, hey, hey, buddy, you got something right there in your eye. You got this sin problem over here. He's saying, before you go to your brother and do that, take the log out of your eye. You're forgetting. Don't be a hypocrite. Deal with your stuff first. And I think the general principle is in play when we're talking about those who are outside the church as well. So, so, so here's, here's, here's the point. Here's the bigger point. Making biblical judgments of people's lives is necessary so as to determine if a brother needs correcting or an outsider needs evangelizing. Jesus is not saying that if you see a speck in your brother's eye that you can't go to him and tell him about it. He says, take the log out first. Okay? But in either context, 
of making biblical judgments of people's lives that are in the church or outside the church, hypocrisy is displeasing to the Lord and is no foundation to restore a brother or to preach the gospel to, 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 to an outsider. Do you follow that? We must take the log out of our own eye first. We can't come to the world and be hypocritical. We can't come to the world and say this is what God's good design is for gender and marriage and sexuality. And this is the way to salvation whenever we live a a hypocritical life. We must take the log out of our own eye first. A third necessary response is that we must ask the Lord to give us his heart. Who was Jesus when he walked the earth and when he saw sinners? He was full of compassion. Matthew 9 Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Is that how you see the world? Is that how you see LGBTQ people? Or do you get angry at them? You, You look at them and you say, Ah, those people, they're messing up our society. Before Christ, you were messing up our society too. May we have compassion on those who are trapped in the lies of the evil one. We can't see them as people that are evil, that we want nothing to do with. We must see them as people that we run to and we embrace and we say, come hear the truth. God has so much more for you. He has so much better for you. Jesus strongly rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees and he exposes their hypocrisy. And I want you to understand that when we expose hypocrisy, we expose sin, it must be bathed in compassion. Listen to the compassionate heart of Christ. He blasted the scribes and the Pharisees. He tells them you are white, washed sepulchers, tombs. You are full of dead men's bones. On the outside, you look good. You're painted over white. But on the inside, you're a, you're, 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 you're a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, he just, he says that your father is, is the devil. He blasts them. He said, he said that in John 8. But listen to what Jesus says after he rebukes him in Matthew 23. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, look, your house is left to you desolate. You feel the compassion of Christ there? He says, he says I'm rebuking you because I have to rebuke you, but, it, but I wanted you to come to me. And this is the heart of our compassion in Christ to all those, whether they're they're hypocritical Christians or they're lost unbelievers. Whether they're adulterers or fornicators or liars, whether they're homosexual or transgender, it's the same heart of compassion. Come to me. I want to gather you like 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 a hen gathers his brood under its wings. I want to protect you. Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest for your souls. Necessary response. We must ask the Lord to give us his heart. And lastly, necessary response is that we must pray like our lives depend on it. I want to read a section on prayer that we normally read just one part of this section. This is what we normally read. James 5. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
or you, your translation may say, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's really all we go to in James 5 right there. We're going to read the other section about Elijah because we're kind of confused about this thing about Elijah. How is James connecting prayer and Elijah? Look, look at the whole context, James 5. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah, so now James is going to give an example about prayer. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. I'm just looking for five days so I can go play golf. (laughs) Honestly, that's all I'm looking for. But he prayed for three years. And it didn't rain. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. What's the context here? We don't see the prayer of Elijah in 1 Kings. They don't, scripture didn't give us his prayer. But it says that there was a famine in the land for three years. Why was there a famine in the land in the, nation, in, in the nation of Israel for three years? Because Ahab, the king of Israel, was in bed with his wife Jezebel, who was an idolater, an, an, an idolatrous who was worshiping pagan gods. And so God was judging the land of Israel with no rain through, through, through the prophet. And then you have the story where Elijah confronts the 450 prophets of Baal. He says, whose God is the real God? And he makes this, this sacrifice. He tells the 450 prophets of the pagan God. says, you make an altar and you call down fire. And whichever God answers by fire is the one true God. So the 450 prophets of Baal, they dance around the altar. And they cut themselves and they scream out. And they holler unto their dead, no God that can hear. And, and nothing happens. And then Elijah says, okay, I'm going to show you something. Get a bunch of water, douse the whole thing with water, and we're going to pray to the one true God. They prayed to the one true God. Fire came down and consumed the sacrifice, consumed the altar. This great, mighty victory. And look at what happened, 1 Kings 18. Then Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. This is to the king. For there is the sound of an abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and he put his face between his knees and said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And seven times he said, go again. It came to pass the seventh time that he said, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. This is amazing. This is amazing. Pray like our lives depend on it. Why? Because prayer is powerful. Because prayer works. Elijah prayed that it would not rain for three years and it did not rain. Then he prayed that it would rain again, and it rained again. In the middle of a pagan society, in the middle of a society where the king of the nation was in bed with an idolatrous, in the middle of a society where it was dark, where they had rebelled against the one true God, in the middle of that society, Elijah prayed, and God answered his prayer. 
you know the tendency for some of us here today is just to think we got to run and hide in the corner for God to come back one day and to rescue us from this pagan world. No, we need to pray like Elijah. Why? Because, because God answers with fire. Because God answers with rain. The same God that answered with fire and consumed the altar is this, and the same God who sent rain because Elijah prayed is the same God that can turn a nation. He's the same God. He's the same God that can use you and I to pray. 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 Like our lives depend on it. We don't pray because we don't think that our lives depend on it. Pray like our lives depend on it. Because God shows us in James 5. He says, pray the, the, the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And he says, look at Elijah. If you want to know that I answer prayers, look at Elijah. And if you think, if you think, how in the world will we be, will we be able to influence this culture that is so far gone? They're completely rejecting even the created order. How crazy is it to think that any of us could pray that it wouldn't rain and it wouldn't rain for three years? None of us would even attempt to do that, would we? Because it seems so outlandish, doesn't it? This is what God's word says. Pray. So that's the most necessary response. We must, we must stand for biblical truth and we must protect our kids We must shape their minds. We must show them what God's word says about their identity, who God made them to be. But we must pray. We must have compassion on the lost. We must have compassion on those that are bound in all manner of sin and sexuality. And we must pray like our lives depend on it. Because the God who answers by fire and rain is the same God who can answer today. What can God do through our church and our life and your life? And Christians around this country who stand up and pray that God would change this country, that God would bring an awakening to awaken hearts, to to increase the influence of the gospel through our lives. Pray. Because God answers with fire. Because God answers with rain. Because God does the impossible even when it looks the darkest. Amen. Would you pray with me? Would you stand to your feet and pray with me? Lord, we come before you, Lord, and we don't, we don't understand all of your ways. and We struggle from time to time living in the, in the middle of society like we live in, and we can become discouraged or overwhelmed. It's not easy to raise a family during these times, and it's not easy, this battle that we're up against. But Lord, you show us in your word that no matter how seemingly impossible it looks, that you hear the prayers of the righteous. The prayers of the righteous have powerful effect. That's what your word says. So Lord, may we not be prayerless, but may we seek you in power and and, and in prayer. God, it may look like it may look like the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. But Lord, you've left us here. As you say, as Jesus said, that we're the salt of the earth, a city set on a hill. And may we never stop praying 
that you would use us. I pray for an awakening in the lives of your people here today. That we would awaken to our responsibility. That we would awaken to our calling. That we would love those who you love. That we would speak truth to those who need truth. That we would do all of it through your love and through your grace and through your mercy. And may we never give up because you are God and you are King. You are the one true God who has the final say. Lord, we submit all these things to you. God, and I pray for those specifically who, who may be dealing with those issues concerning gender and sexuality. Lord, I pray, God, that they would turn to you to find the source of true identity founded upon who you made them to be as their creator. And I pray, God, that we would be willing and open to have conversations with anyone that wants to talk so that we can give them hope and truth and love and compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name.